Good afternoon. I'm Russ Portnoy from the NJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. I'd like to welcome you all to the first of the professors' rounds in the 2017 NJHS NHPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. This is a special series of webinars in which we highlight the work of some leading experts in the field of palliative care. I'm very pleased today to introduce Dr. Susan Block to you. Dr. Block is a professor of psychiatry and medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's a senior physician in psychiatry and medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and attends at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Since 2011, she has been the director of the Serious Illness Care Program of Ariadne Labs, which is a laboratory for health system innovation and a joint initiative of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Block has been a leader in palliative care for more than two decades. Beginning in the 1990s, when she assumed the directorship of the Faculty Scholars Program of the Project on Death in America, her efforts to establish the foundation of specialist palliative care through education, training, credentialing, and mentorship has had a profound influence on the development of palliative medicine in the United States. In 2013, Dr. Block was elected one of 30 visionaries in palliative care by the membership of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. She is the recipient of the Academy's 2002 Distinguished Service Award, 2006 PDIA Palliative Medicine Leadership Award, and the 2016 Lifetime Achievement Award. She has also received the 2013 Pioneer Award for Outstanding Leadership in Healthcare from the Healthcare Chaplaincy and the 2016 John Mendelssohn Award for Outstanding Contributions in the Development of the Field of Palliative Care from the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Her topic today is Improving Serious Illness Conversations Through Tools, Training, and System Changes. We'll have a question and answer period immediately after her talk. Dr. Block? Thank you very much, Dr. Portnoy, and it's a great pleasure to be here today to talk with you about improving serious illness conversations through tools, training, and systems changes. This is work that we've been doing here at Ariadne Labs in collaboration with Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospital. I have no financial disclosures to share with you today and uh, look forward to talking with you um, about some of the work that we've been doing. Overall, uh, in this presentation, I hope to give you a sense of the value of conversations between oncologists and seriously ill patients um, and how uh, those conversations improve both uh, quality of care as well as have potential impacts on resource use. I'd like to describe the tools, training approach, and systems change components of the Serious Illness Care Program and give you a sense of the evidence that we have been accumulating of the impact of the Serious Illness Care Program on the outcomes of patients with serious illness. Uh, stepping back, our goal in this program, as I think it is in most of healthcare, is to improve the care of patients. Um, moving from where we are now, which is doing some of the right things, some of the time for some of our patients with serious illness, to where we want to be as soon as possible, doing all the right things all the time for all of our patients with serious illness. In trying to understand a little bit about the background for this work, um, I'd like to kind of reflect a little bit on the research that has been done, particularly in cancer, which is the best studied serious illness um, around communication and conversations. Um, there have been a number of studies that have informed our understanding of how conversations take place in the cancer setting. For example, among patients with advanced lung and colorectal cancer, the first end-of-life conversation occurs a median of 33 days before the patient dies, 
quite late in the illness trajectory. More than half of first conversations about end-of-life issues take place when the patient is in the, is in the hospital. And when you think what it's like for patients to be in the hospital these days, they're usually quite ill, they may be on mental status altering medications, they're often anxious and frightened, there's strangers around them, they're separated from their usual environment. It's a very high stress situation in which to have conversations about a sensitive topic like personal goals and values about care. And and the other rather surprising and I think troubling finding from uh, the, some of the work that's been done has been that only about a quarter of conversations of patients with cancer uh, in these two illness categories um, take place with their oncologist, the doctor who knows the best. Uh, the remaining 75% take place with strangers, with hospitalists or uh, residents or interns or someone who they're only meeting for the first time during a hospitalization or an emergency department visit. Most of us, I think, would not want these conversations to take place with strangers um, around uh, such sensitive and important issues. Uh, the other things that we know about conversations in this setting is that, that these conversations all often fail to address key elements of what are recognized as quality discussions, focusing on procedures the patients may not fully understand, rather than the areas on which they are expert, what's important to them, what their values are, what they're willing to go through, um, what, is, uh, what abilities are so critical to their lives that they need to be maintained at all costs, um, and that these conversations tend to be very doctor-centered rather than patient-centered. Finally, we know that most patient preferences about end-of-life care are not consistently documented in a standard place in the electronic health record, which is now widely in use, meaning that the only way to find out um, when conversations have taken place, what the patient's preferences are, is through um, reading through multiple pages of progress notes in the electronic record. Um, and what this means is that patient preferences are often not, not transmitted from one setting of care to the next. While we recognize those problems, we know from the data that has been uh, collected over the years that early conversation about goals of care and end-of-life wishes benefit not only patients but their families. Um, that these conversations are associated with enhanced goal concordant care, patients being more likely to get the kind of care they want as they approach the end of life. Improved quality of life, a better quality of living with a serious illness, better patient satisfaction, more and earlier hospice care, allowing patients access to the gold standard of clinical care for people who are approaching the end of life. Fewer hospitalizations where most people don't want to be. Um, better patient and family coping. Eased burden of decision making for families who are sometimes confronted with making decisions on behalf of loved ones under very difficult circumstances. Improved bereavement outcomes for family members and finally reduced costs. As we think about improving communication, one of the big questions is how do we make these conversations better? How do we improve the communication? And we now have uh, a number of um, uh, different data points that help us understand the extent to which communication training interventions actually work. Um, we know that communication training programs tend to improve clinician confidence and make them more likely to share empathic statements. This must be hard 
for you, or I'm sorry that you're having to go through that. Um, but we don't have um, high quality evidence from previous studies of any impact on patient outcomes. Um, while clinicians can do better behaviors, um, they, they don't seem to translate or they haven't been, seen, been found to translate into improvements for the, from the patient's perspective. There are also no studies that show that there is a sustained impact from training interventions. And finally, clinicians worry that any kind of end-of-life conversation will be harmful to patients, and this is one of the many one of the major factors they cite in um, uh, as a reason for avoiding or delaying having these conversations. The worry that bringing up the issues about around end-of-life will make patients um, lose hope um, or give up or in other ways suffer from a psychological perspective. I think our summary of the uh, literature about the impact of training is that training alone doesn't create enough behavior change to significantly improve outcomes at the end of life. And this recognition has led us to develop uh, the Serious Illness Care Intervention, which is an approach to improving conversations about serious illness care goals and values through tools, training, and systems change. Our tools consist of an eight-item serious illness conversation guide, which is a structured communication tool to help clinicians focus on what's most important to patients in an efficient and practical way that reduces some of the variation that we know to be antithetical to high-quality outcomes in, uh, in healthcare. In association with our conversation guide, we have reference materials in a, the form of a clinician reference guide, and we have materials for patients to help prepare them to have conversations with their clinicians and also, also to follow up um, uh, with family members following a conversation with the clinician, getting over that barrier that many patients feel about, I don't know quite how to bring this up with my wife or my daughter, um, helping them kind of over that that particular hurdle as they try to, as we try to expand the conversation, not just um, between the patient and the clinician, but with the patient and the family. Um, we've also developed an education program focused um, on uh, clinicians and designed to be scalable and to be um, uh, feasible within uh, the workflow of busy clinical practitioners. Um, most of the the clinician uh, training programs that have been tried in that area of serious illness communication take multiple days. And very, very, very few clinicians and health systems are able to train up um, clinicians using that kind of very time-intensive model. In addition, what we've recognized is that um, the use of the tools and the, and the implementation of the training is facilitated when we um, pair those um, or accompany those with a series of small system changes um, that include identification of patients at high risk of death, reminders to remind clinicians that Mrs. Jones is someone who you thought might, might benefit from a serious illness conversation. Uh, she's coming in today, please have the conversation today, um, as well as documentation templates to ease the process of documentation in the electronic health record, and as mentioned before, patient and family resources to help them carry the conversation home and, and uh, share what they're learning and what they're thinking with their loved ones. 
Um, one of the central components of um, our intervention is a conversation guide or checklist. Um, and um, in developing the conversation uh, guide, we were very much influenced um, by the work done by Atul Gawande and published in the Checklist Manifesto, um, and also by the, um, uh, the knowledge that has been gained in a variety of other settings about what checklists can do and not do. And I think if we think about the key um, place where checklists have been tried, it's been in the airline industry, where it helps all of us who um, get on big birds have gentle landings. And if you think about it, um, uh, landing an airplane or taking an airplane off, getting an airplane to take off are um, high-stress, complex situations that require multiple steps um, and that take place under um, under circumstances where um, uh, there's a lot of kind of stress and um, a sense of pressure on the persons who are executing the, the numbers of the, the elements of the checklist. And so what checklists do or guides um, do is they distill what we know about best practices and evidence um, and translate them into something that can be implemented in the real, real world. So if we know that it's better for the flaps to be up or the flaps to be down, that kind of knowledge gets translated into a checklist that tells the pilot on the airplane what to do. And what the checklist also does is it makes sure that, we, that things are done in a proper order and that everything that needs to be done is done as, the, as this complex process is ex executed. And in many different settings, ranging from aviation to uh, building um, to healthcare, um, we, find, we find that use of checklists and guides achieves a higher level of baseline performance. So we focus the Serious Illness Care Program, which is designed to improve the lives of all patients with serious illness by increasing meaningful conversations about personal values and priorities with their clinicians. Um, we focused our program around the use of a checklist or a guide. Um, this is a copy of our Serious Illness Conversation Guide, and you can see that on the left-hand side it kind of uh, list the elements of a conversation flow, and on the right-hand side um, we have what we call patient-tested language, um, which are um, phrases and ways of asking um, difficult questions of patients in a way that patients have told us they find to be gentle, acceptable, and clear. And we have found that the use of this conversation guide raises the baseline performance of almost all clinicians who um, use it. So now I'm going to turn and describe a little bit of the work that we've done to test our conversation guide. Um, and I'll describe uh, work that we've done in the cancer setting um, where we implemented uh, the Serious Illness Conversation Program by asking clinicians to select patients with a prognosis of less than a year um, using the surprise question, would you be surprised if this patient died in the next year? Um, recognizing that, that that patient population is a group who could benefit um, from an early conversation uh, with their clinician about their goals and values. Um, all the clinicians in the program are trained um, to use the Serious Illness Conversation Guide in the two-and-a-half-hour training program. Patients receive a letter um, describing um, the uh, conversation they're likely to have with their clinician, saying these are some things to think about ahead of time. Please bring a family member if you want to have somebody there. And it helps patients be, and this is, um, and also, they're also told that this is a normal part of our practice and it doesn't mean that you're necessarily getting worse because we have, I think that there's um, uh, a lot of thought that, that um, 
uh, coalesces around the idea that it's better for patients to have conversations when they're not in crisis um, and when they have the time to think and reflect and kind of work through um, where they are in relation to their illness um, without having to also be contending with the serious medical crisis at the same time. Um, once the, the patient has been identified and we know they have a visit, the clinician is reminded to have the conversation. They have the conversation. The conversation is documented in the electronic health record in a special template, drop-down menus, and free text fields to make it easy and efficient for the clinician. And the patient is given the family communication guide. Um, this is the entire kind of component, the set of components for our intervention. We used a number of different measures to test the impact of um, the uh, intervention both on clinicians and on patients. Um, for clinicians, we looked at whether they liked the training, whether they actually used the uh, conversation guide, um, whether they had the conversations with patients, and how long conversations took. Um, we also looked at the documentation of the conversations. Um, among patients, we looked at anxiety, depression, acceptability, peacefulness, and the impact of the conversations on uh, the patient's um, behaviors subsequently. We enrolled all adult outpatient oncology clinicians, physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants um, practicing at the Dana-Farber, um, where we, we uh, Cancer Institute, they were all, all of those groups, I'm sorry, I misspoke, were eligible to participate. We had 73% of all eligible clinicians volunteer to participate, and then we randomized the uh, volunteers into one of two groups um, within each disease center um, by clusters. So 47 uh, clinicians were in the intervention group and 43 in the control group. Um, among the clinicians, uh, there were 76% physicians and 24% nurse practitioners, 57% uh, were women, 43% men, and the median years of experience was 10. For patient eligibility, as I said, um, we use what's called a surprise question. So any oncology patient who is identified by their clinician with a no response to the surprise question, would you be surprised if this patient died within a year? was eligible for the trial. We did exclude patients with cognitive dysfunction and those who did not speak English. Overall, our patient survey response rate was 76%. Um, this slide gives you a sense of how many patients we um, uh, screened and then enrolled in the study. Overall, we screened over 11,000 patients, of whom 1,600 were eligible, uh, had a no answer to the surprise question. And of those 1,600, Patients were excluded for a number of different reasons, um, and then we ended up enrolling and randomizing 391 patients, about half in the intervention and half in the control group. Um, patients in this, in this study um, were surveyed at baseline before anything had happened, um, and then they were surveyed every two months um, throughout um, the duration up, up to, to two years. Um, when the patient um, uh, had a conversation with their clinician. They were then surveyed one week after that conversation to um, assess their reaction to the conversation with the clinician. But generally, except for that one uh, survey one week after the conversation, the surveys were conducted every two months. 
Overall, at baseline, the patients were uh, quite similar in age, gender, income, race, and education. As you can see from uh, this slide, um, the overwhelming majority, 97% uh, in the intervention, 96% in the control group were white, and this is a major limitation of this study, and they were also relatively uh, well off financially and well-educated. Well so this is a, uh, not a fully generalizable sample. Um, among our clinicians, uh, 46 of the 47 enrolled intervention clinicians completed the training, and the effectiveness of the training was rated as 4.4 out of 5, um, with 5 being the best, uh, a great deal of effectiveness. 87% of clinicians completed a conversation, and the median conversation time was 18.8 minutes. Uh, the clinicians viewed the conversation guide as acceptable, with a uh, mean rating of 4.2 out of 5, and 70% reported that if they were to get sick themselves, they would want to have a serious illness conversation using the guide with their clinician. Um, we were very interested and concerned to make sure that this intervention did not do any harm to our patients and looked at the survival of all patients in the trial, finding that there were no differences in survival um, among patients in the intervention and control group. In addition, the intervention led to more and earlier conversations with 95% uh, of intervention patients having conversations compared to 75% of patients in the control group, which is significant at uh, the .003 level. In addition, we were successful in the intervention in moving the conversations about three months earlier in the intervention group, 151 days as opposed to 58 days. Um, the idea being that this kind of earlier conversation gives patients more time to process, prepare, and make decisions um, that they might make differently, um, knowing that um, uh, that they having a better sense of what their um, uh, prognosis and um, op care options might be. We also found that the intervention led to better conversations, um, it, and they were better in two different ways that we examined. In two different uh, processes. First of all, they were more retrievable, with 60.3% of intervention patients having documentation in a single uh, advanced care planning module in the EHR that made them readily retrievable, as opposed to about 11.3% in the control group. Um, and the information that we were able to um, discern was much more comprehensive um, in uh, the uh, patients in the intervention group, 95% as opposed to 45% having um, information recorded about goals and values in the advanced care planning module. This slide demonstrates a, the results of a uh, much more detailed sub-analysis of, of 40 out of the 391 patients, 20 in the intervention, 20 in the control group, looking in more detail at uh, quality elements for serious illness conversations, demonstrating that across the board um, in, in values and goals, in end-of-life planning, in prognosis and illness understanding, patients in the intervention group had better quality conversations. There was less difference, although it was, there was a trend towards difference as well, um, in documentation of procedures and code status and, and preferences around use of life-sustaining treatments um, between the two groups. Um, 
as we turn now to the effect of the intervention on patients themselves, um, although there was no baseline differences between intervention and control uh, patients in anxiety levels, um, we found that two weeks after the intervention conversation, um, uh, the reduction, there was a 50% reduction in levels of moderate to severe anxiety in patients in the intervention group. Um, and that, that um, those differences were sustained for two months um, after the conversation um, and were also sustained, uh, these, these improvements in anxiety were sustained over um, multiple um, evaluations for up to 28 weeks after the conversation. Similarly, for depression, although there were no baseline differences, two weeks after the intervention conversation, um, the rates of moderate to severe uh, depression um, were reduced by 50%. Um, uh, and those rates um, uh, rose slightly um, over time um, uh, following the conversation, but the, the initial reduction was similar to that for patients with moderate to severe anxiety. Um, turning now to qualitative data from our uh, patients, um, we found that 86% um, of the patients who had the conversation found it worthwhile. Um, and the patients, um, about two-thirds of patients, um, reported positive behavior changes following the conversation. We asked everybody, what, if anything, have you done differently as a result of this conversation? Um, and about two-thirds of patients said something, they did something that they considered positive, with 19% saying they did nothing, 7% saying they did something negative, had having a negative response, 4% um, saying what conversation and not remembering at all, and 4% of patients um, saying that they had done something else different um, following the conversation. Uh, this slide gives you a little bit of a sense of the range of experiences that patients reported um, following the, the serious illness conversation, um, categorized into uh, a number of kind of key domains in terms of practical planning. Um, a, an example is making changes to my will, planning my funeral, communication with family, being more realistic in my approach with my family and friends about my prognosis. Um, in end-of-life care planning, making a complete list of all my last wishes, such as when I can no longer go to the bathroom myself, I want hospice, house care, in the area of well-being. I'm doing the same stuff as before, just feeling less anxious about the future, hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. And the areas of values, goals, and priorities, um, saying I've started to think about what my priorities are in terms of quality of life. And finally, in the area of therapeutic relationship, mostly the conversation brought us closer. And these are representative quotes that describe patient experiences in these uh, domains and give you a sense of how patients um, experience the impact of these conversations. So in summary, um, I think that we have demonstrated uh, in this trial um, that um, the serious illness intervention results in more conversations that take place earlier in the course of illness that are better in quality, um, that are feasible to implement in the context of a busy oncology practice, and are effective from the point of view of um, positive effects on patients. Um, and in particular, in the patients uh, in the intervention group compared to the control, there were significantly more patients who had at least one documented conversation before death, that the conversations began 
at least three months earlier in the intervention group, that the, and that the discussions were documented in a more retrievable location in the electronic health record, and had more patient-centered information and were more comprehensive. The clinicians viewed the training program as effective and found it useful and to be a positive experience. Um, and the conversation guide was feasible because the 18.8 minutes the conversations took were manageable within the context of a routine workflow in oncology. And we found that the conversation guide was acceptable in use to both patients and clinicians. From the patient point of view, we found that the intervention significantly reduced moderate and severe anxiety and depression, um, and that those levels of anxiety, lower levels of anxiety, persisted for at least 28 weeks after the intervention in a patient population with an average survival of about 13 months. So even though their illness was progressing during this time, um, they were able for a longer period of time um, to maintain um, uh, a uh, lower level of anxiety even in the face of worsening diseases. Um, patients viewed these serious illness conversations as worthwhile in the overwhelming majority of instances. And they found that the conversations prompted them to enact concrete behavioral changes as a result of the serious illness that they viewed as positive. Obviously, this study has certain limitations. Some of the big ones were that by asking the surprise question of all the clinicians, um, it is likely to have stimulated some awareness um, of a short prognosis in both the clinicians um, in the intervention group and those in the control group, which would reduce differences between groups. Um, similarly, all the patients completed surveys about their values and goals and priorities, which may have stimulated reflection about their disease progression um, and um, more reflection about their own goals, again, reducing differences between groups. Um, we were not, um, we're not reporting here on the actual conversations, but on the documentation of the conversation, which is what we were measuring here. Um, and we didn't look at inpatient documentation uh, in this study. Um, because of the population that I described at the very beginning, who were educated, highly educated, more white than our general population, um, and had higher incomes, the questions about generalizability are um, open and represent a significant limitation. I think there are a number of implications from uh, these findings. Um, at which we have also replicated in the primary care setting, uh, demonstrating um, more conversations and better conversations among seriously ill primary care patients, as well as reductions in resource utilization and increases in hospice care uh, utilization in both numbers and duration um, in the primary care setting. So we have now in two trials um, very sort of similar outcomes for our patient population. Um, but we think that this intervention and this program represents a path to near universal conversations about prognosis, values, goals, and preferences that can be implemented in a variety of settings. 
of settings. And in this setting, we were able to get to nearly 96% of all patients having had a serious illness conversation in uh, the intervention group, which is something that many policymakers and um, important associations um, have called for, that this is a conversation that should take place for every patient every time. So we're getting close to our goal of doing the right things for all of our patients all the time on this one issue about conversations. Um, the fact that we were able to move these conversations up by an average of three months gives patients the opportunities to make choices to better meet their own personal goals while they're living with a serious illness and to prepare themselves and their family members for the end of life rather than smashing into a brick wall thinking that they have one or two or five or ten more years of life um, with a sudden complication for which they're completely unprepared. Um, it allows for um, this idea of a more gentle landing as patients approach the end of life. Um, the conversations that we were able to um, stimulate through use of this structured conversation guide were much more patient-centered than usual conversations and the conversations that we um, found in the control group and allowed patients to tell their clinicians what was most important to them rather than focusing as many conversations do about um, things that matter most to the clinicians at the moment, like do you want us to put a tube down your throat if your um, breathing stops. Um, patients have goals other than living as long as possible, and they would look, were able, better able to articulate and share those goals with their clinicians. I think the finding that we were able to increase the amount of documentation in a what we call a single source of truth for advanced care planning in the electronic health record um, means that um, future clinicians caring for that patient um, in another setting, um, during a hospitalization, um, while covering um, for a colleague or in the ED can better find where the conversation left off um, the last time it, this, these issues came up. And to know what the patient's wishes have, were um, if they transfer across care, um, care settings, excuse me. Um, and finally, you know, although I think that um, the uh, literature about the tremendous benefits of early palliative care for patients with serious illness um, has been um, game-changing for the field of palliative medicine. Um, we don't have the workforce that will allow us to implement um, that model across all patients with serious illness. And so training the primary clinicians of the patients who are caring for them to improve the kind of conversations that they have routinely um, as part of the care they're delivering on a day-in, day-out basis for these populations um, uh, is a way of improving long-term emotional well-being for these patients in the context of serious illness conversations um, by having this be a routine practice um, in their um, uh, ongoing care of the patient. Um, I'd like to thank um, our um, wonderful and large and very hardworking team from the Ariadne Lab Serious Illness Care Program and would be um, happy now to turn um, the uh, conversation um, back over to Dr. Portnoy um, to moderate um, a series of questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Block. That was really terrific.
Um, I'd like the audience to feel free now to answer some questions. Um, I will moderate a question and answer period. I can see the questions are beginning to come in. Let me start with let me start with a very basic question. Can you just simply define what you mean by a serious illness conversation? Yeah, great question. So we're thinking about a serious illness conversation as a conversation about values, goals, and treatment preferences and priorities that take place in the setting of a serious illness. And we are making this choice to differentiate serious illness conversations from what uh, the broad spectrum of advanced care planning conversations because we think that the greatest impact of advanced care planning conversations is on patients who already have a serious illness. And the reason that the greatest impact is there is that patients um, are better able to predict what might happen to them. Um, that um, they um, are focused on their quality of life and what are having experiences that are making them more able to weigh um, benefits and trade-offs. Um, their clinicians are better able as well to kind of predict what might happen. And the tremendous response shift that takes place over time in which, you know, a patient um, might say, you know, I would never want to live if I were quadriplegic. Um, but then becomes quadriplegic and finds that after a period of adaptation that they're able to live and have a good life and have a meaningful life and feel like life is worth continuing to live. Um, and so that, that this response shift happens for everybody with serious illness, whether it's cancer or heart disease, saying, I wouldn't want to live with this, and then they get, this, they get what they didn't want to live with, and they find a way to adapt and adjust to it. So we find that the... Um, uh, that the, um, it, it's, it's once a patient is in a serious illness, they have a better ability to predict what their goals and values and preferences are going to be as they get sicker than when these conversations take place very early, and so they're more actionable. Let me um, let me paraphrase this question since it I think it relates to just what exactly what you were just saying. Um, your intervention is one point in time, and yet the trajectory of the illness could have a time frame that continues for many months and perhaps even years. I will just add that you, in your study, you were analyzing data from the patients who died, yeah. but many of the patients didn't die, and, yeah. and so the question is, can you, can you contextualize the intervention relative to the notion that people can live for a very long time after the conversation, that their yeah. goals may change as their circumstances change. If adaptation is happening to everyone, what makes you think that a goal discussion one year prior to the patient's period of, of rapid deterioration is going to be relevant to what's happening during that period? Great question. What we found in looking at our data, both in oncology and in primary care, is that the first conversation increases the likelihood of subsequent conversations. And it somehow breaks the ice and that, that there are more subsequent conversations with their clinician about their goals and values and preferences. And so conversation begets conversations. And so that these conversations are evolving. And that one of the biggest challenges that we hear from clinicians is getting the conversation started. And once the conversation kind of gets started, it appears that both clinicians and patients are more willing 
to engage in such conversations in the future throughout the remaining trajectory of the patient's life. Here, uh, two of, your, of the viewers were asked a, a similar question, and one cited the recent paper in JAMA that uh, demonstrated that a palliative care intervention in the ICU setting was associated with an increased risk of PTSD, and yeah. the other, other um, viewer more generically wanted to know if there were any unintended consequences, adverse consequences for any of the patients who received the intervention. And so the question, yeah. the question more globally is why is this different than the intervention that was studied in the ICU setting and looked to be potentially problematic for patients? And if it's not PTSD as the issue, are, were there any adverse effects for any patient? Yes. Um, good question. I think that, you know, we don't really know why we had such a different result from the JAMA um, paper, but I think one of the key elements was that this conversation was not delivered by a stranger in the setting of an acute medical crisis. And I think those are two very, very major um, differences. It was, it was initiated and conducted by someone who the patient knew and had a relationship with. And um, that was, I think that's a very critical element. Um, I think the second critical element has to do with um, the issue of setting. And um, uh, I went to uh, psychiatry school as well as the internal medicine school. And one of the kind of core learnings in psychiatry school is that when someone is in a crisis, um, you don't um, arouse more anxiety by talking about difficult issues. You wait until uh, things have settled down and then the patient has sort of the emotional resilience and the capacity to deal with more difficult psychological issues. And, you know, I think the ICU is the scariest, most anxiety-provoking setting you can imagine to have a first conversation about serious illness care goals. And I suspect that that's part of why the traumatization took place. It's entirely consistent with what you learn in medical mental health training about you don't add stress on top of a crisis unless you don't have any other choice. And so I think, I think that's something that is really not well recognized within healthcare and is absolutely kind of critically um, important. Um, in terms of, and, and, and second, in terms of the adverse consequences, um, uh, we had about 7% of patients who became more anxious. Um, we're looking at those data now, um, but the majority of patients showed a diminishment of anxiety, and the most anxious patients had the most diminishment of anxiety, and it was sustained. Um, and post-traumatic stress disorder is a form of an anxiety disorder. And so I think our intervention had in some ways the opposite effect for the overwhelming effect, uh, for the overwhelming number of patients than the ones studied in the ICU. I think that the, the issue about strangers having this conversation is another, you know, is, is absolutely key here, as well as the effects of sort of stress in the crisis situation. And on the flip side of that question, uh, one of the viewers notes that you started your talk by saying that there was no evidence that communication training had a positive impact on patient reported outcomes. But your own study seemed to suggest positive outcomes in terms of depression and anxiety. So yeah. do you, you say that your study is the first study to ever demonstrate evidence of uh, communica that communication training can benefit PROs? Well, I, you know, this is not communication training alone. 
Okay, and I think this is a very important issue. Um, this is tools, you know, uh, the Serious Health Conversation Guide and the other tools that I showed at the beginning, the training program and these systems changes that make it easier for clinicians to do the right thing and for the, the outcomes of the conversations to be actionable. Um, and so I think that that is a difference from what most of the training interventions are. There are, there's, to my knowledge, there is one um, other study that showed some impact on um, outcomes, but it was a study with very small numbers and there were some very um, significant problems with methodology. Um, and so I think that, and it, then that was a training alone study, but to my knowledge, there has been uh, no other studies showing that training alone really had an impact on PR. Training alone really had an impact on these kind of PROs. Just from a practical consideration, uh, someone wants to know if the physicians and nurse practitioners and physicians' assistants who participated were incentivized in any way. Um, all participants, both the um, anyone who volunteered received a one hundred fifty dollar gift certificate uh, for taking the training. Uh, a number of the questions seem to um, focus on two main areas, so I'll, let's address each one in turn. The first one has to do with the comment you made about resource utilization. Yes. Uh, you implied, uh, you actually you stated outright that both, that all the work you've done has shown that this reduces resource utilization, but what are the details there? Do you, have you actually quantified it and what kind of resources you're talking about? Yeah. Um, the, the, um, the work that we, done, we did um, using this intervention in primary care was the work that I was citing. So we haven't tested it yet in oncology. We're looking at that now. But in primary care, we found that there was um, a uh, $2,200 per patient per month reduction in resource use in the last um, six months of life. Um, and that overall, um, the um, costs of the implementation itself, um, you know, the confidence intervals were somewhere between um, a loss of $400 to a gain of uh, over a million dollars. So, and that, uh, in terms of return on investment. And that was due to reduced hospitalization mostly? Reduced hospitalization and increased in earlier use of hospice. That was actually another question here, uh, the hospice question. Um, I, are, do you have any other specifics? I, it's a sort of a general question. Do you have any other specifics about the impact of conversations like this on systems of care, in, in particular the role of hospice, home hospice, um, whether or not patients uh, sought out different kinds of benefits that they might, other, might not otherwise uh, be thinking about as they yeah. sought these modifying therapy? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the analysis we're doing right now, so I don't really have an answer to that. The other questions other here... Primary care. Sorry. Um, other than for primary care, which I said already. Now, the other um, questions here um, tend to revolve around this issue of generalizability. Yeah. Uh, several of the viewers note that, uh, well, they first of all acknowledged and and we're thankful to you for acknowledging yourself how selected the population is at Dana Farber. Yes. And they wanted you to comment a bit on the issue of, of diversity as it might relate to these conversations 
Um, one viewer focused on linguistic acculturation. Another viewer focused on uh, issues related to uh, religion and spiritual uh, differences in the population. Um, and I think just as a general question, if uh, the types the types of uh, elements that contribute to diversity uh, in this country are so protean that you just would wonder whether or not one size could fit all uh, in this population. I'm so glad this question is coming up because it was it's been one of the ones that we have been most concerned about and it led us to um, initiate a whole other sort of set of work um, uh, which we've carried out mostly in South Carolina um, really adapting our serious illness conversation guide and testing it with rural African-American patients there and what we learned through work that was done by my colleague Justin Sanders um, is that um, we uh, needed to adapt the conversation guide um, to focus on, uh, to add a new question focused on faith and family um, that um, emerged as part of our testing with African American patients in South Carolina. And so uh, we iterate our conversation guide based on sort of, you know, evidence-based evaluation. And so our most, you know, our recently iterated conversation guide following the end of that study um, includes a new, com a new question um, asking about what kind of um, strengths do you turn to for help in dealing with your illness. And we found that from the point of view of African American patients, that was a really critical question to add and that it made the conversation guide more acceptable. And I think interestingly what we heard from that, learned from that work was uh, uh, that there, that uh, um, having a conversation guide that focuses on the patient rather than on the procedures was viewed as much more acceptable to that patient population, um, and that there was something, and it because it conveyed a kind of respect and a kind of human concern for the patients as people, um, or as procedures. Um, felt much more about what was important to the healthcare system. And so there were a lot of really deep, important learnings that um, came from our focus group study and from the acceptability trial that we just completed there. And we are now um, working with um, a couple of health systems, in uh, one in Hartford and in Chicago, to adapt the conversation guide for um, patients from Hispanic background and we have a Chinese adaptation that is ongoing now because we very strongly agree that um, understanding how different populations um, understand these questions and respond to these questions and how to make this conversation um, as culturally appropriate as possible is really a critical part of having an effective program. We just have a few more minutes for questions. I want to encourage the audience to post your questions now um, so that we'll have time to it. Here's a question that's very much related to your work but, but may, I think, relate to some uh, broader issues. And uh, the, the viewer wanted to, you to, to help, um, help deconstruct the issues of goals and preferences and values. In other words, it seems like the serious illness conversation was prognosis on the one hand and then a goals discussion focused on specific goals for care and then general preferences and values for care, values about the care the patient would want. And um, 
and the question is, um, how did you? Is this sort of just generally viewed now as the constituent elements of a serious illness conversation, or was are these elements empirically derived? How do you rank order them? Uh, yeah. Should you talk about prognosis first, or or don't introduce prognosis until you have, until there's more discussion about um, uh, goals and values and preferences? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a very a very important question. I think the way we approached the development of the serious illness conversation guide was through a systematic literature review to identify what the current state of knowledge is about these conversations and about how patients respond to them. And for example, one of the reasons that prognosis takes place in the guide relatively, prognostic disclosure takes place in the guide relatively early in the conversation is because there's literature that shows that patients' goals change and what they're willing to go through changes based on their understanding of prognosis. So for example, patients who understand that there's even a 5% chance that they won't live for six months um, choose much more conservative medical treatments than somebody who thinks that they could live longer than six months. And so having a conversation about goals and values and treatments, preferences, um, without having some kind of prognostic context um, really does not allow the patient to integrate um, to make an informed decision about what their goals and values are. Um, and so that's why prognostic disclosure is relatively early in the conversation. Uh, you know, th these are just some, some small examples. I think that one of the things that we know is that after patients understand news of a poor prognosis, that that can be a pretty devastating experience psychologically. And one of the observations from experts in the field is that after prognostic disclosure, it's helpful to help to allow, and this is part of the training that goes with the guide, first of all, it's important to give patients a time to react emotionally, for the clinician to respond uh, empathically, but then focusing on if time is getting short, what are your mo most important goals, allows the patient to reflect on and engage with the idea that well, maybe there are still some good things that can happen even though um, time might be short. And so it kind of lifts them out of um, a, a low space to focus on those goals and kind of, I think, also restabilizes them from a psychological standpoint. And I think that the, the remaining questions about, uh, about trade-offs, about critical abilities, about fears and worries, um, and family, I don't, I don't think there's a particular um, uh, order that's important in those questions. Uh, I think that the fears and worries question is one that um, uh, many clinicians are very reluctant to ask about, um, and we found this in our trainings because um, there's concern that the patient will bring up something that the clinician can't fix. Um, but I think that one of the things that is we've heard over and over again from patients, um, and I think is also in the literature, um, is this idea that talking about difficult experiences is in and of itself therapeutic for many, many patients. And that's, the, that's what we hear over and over from patients in some of our qualitative conversations and evaluations of, um, of the intervention. So we really try to use the best evidence we have uh, to develop the conversation guide and um, to order the questions and to identify what questions needed to be asked.
Here's a, a quick um, a follow-up question. The implication of what you were saying is that the conversation is best held by the clinician who knows the patient and also understands all the medical issues. Um, that's, of course, an issue when you translate this whole model to primary care where the prognostic considerations may be um, may live with the specialist who is also treating the patient, the cardiologist or the pulmonologist or the oncologist. Uh, just in the study, you had patients who, where the conversation was done by nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. And so the question is, did you see any difference in the quality of the conversation, particularly with respect to the prognostic disclosure, when the conversation was held with the oncologist versus the non-oncologist? And what do you think about the challenge of translating this model to primary care when yeah. the primary know what's next for a patient? Yeah. In primary care, we found that most of the conversations were conducted by at least two clinicians, um, a physician and a nurse, a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a case manager or social worker, and that they really liked that model. Um, and that they, the primary care clinicians were very comfortable um, in conducting these conversations with this sick population. Um, and that we didn't specifically ask about, you know, do you feel competent to have the conversation about prognosis um, of the primary care clinicians? But we did find that they seemed to be very comfortable and willing to talk about prognosis in that setting. And obviously, the oncology clinicians, um, the physicians were very comfortable. We didn't hear any issues from the nurses, nurse practitioners or PAs who participated about discomfort with delivering prognosis. I think it was more of an individual variation. And I will say that not everybody uh, discuss prognosis even though it was part of the guide and there was a lot of backing away from that. Um, another very just a practical question. Somebody asked um, how much detail did the patient letter have? Um, uh, it basically said that this is a um, uh, uh, their clinician is going to yeah, but there's, I'm trying to remember the details of it, but that we have, that it's part of the routine in this practice to have conversations with patients with serious illnesses about what's ahead with their illness. We didn't use the D word. We didn't use the word end of life. It was a very sort of general thing. And it said these are some of the questions, some of the issues that your clinician may talk, talk with you, your understanding, your prognosis, um, your goals, your concerns about the future, how involved you want your family members to be, what's most important to you. So it basically frames these issues in the context of living with a serious illness, not in the con context of death and dying and end-of-life care. For anybody who's interested, if you go to the Serious Illness Care Program site at Ariadne Labs, A-R-I-A-D-N-E Labs, you can find a lot of these resources and we welcome you to um, take advantage of them. So we've come to the end of the time for questions. I want to thank Dr. Susan Block um, for a terrific lecture. Thank you so much, Susan. It was just great. And I'd like to remind everybody that our next webinar, Tube Feedings, Medical and Ethical Perspectives, will be given by Dr. Mona Patel, who's the Associate Program Director of Hospice and Palliative Care Medi Medicine Fellowship here at MGHS Hospice and Palliative Care. And that webinar will take place on Thursday, March 2nd, 2017 at 12.30 p.m. Please uh, remember to complete the webinar evaluations that will help us plan future sessions. And we look forward to seeing you at our next professor's rounds. Thanks so much, everyone.